There's an old saying in Berlin. No matter how the world changes, Berlin stays the same. But if it's been a few years since you've been to Berlin, you'll probably notice how much it actually is changing. When you come to Berlin today and you come into the city, there should be one sign saying, under construction. Berliners are getting ready to commemorate 20 years since the Berlin Wall came down, which heralded the end of the Cold War. Today's Berlin is one of Europe's real powerhouse cities. It's a trendsetter undergoing massive rebuilding as the capital of a reunited Germany. Now you can discover Berlin from a totally different viewpoint. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Our guests in the hour ahead are three Berlin residents. They'll help us join hands and, for that matter, connect our studios with the people of Germany to celebrate Reunification Day and to get an insider's view on some of the latest changes Germany's exciting capital city is undergoing. Come along for the celebration as we focus on Berlin. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's been 20 years since the Berlin Wall fell, November 9, 1989. What a night that was. And today we're talking about the Berlin Wall because a lot has happened in 20 years. Back then, Berlin was two cities. Today, uh, in a fitful and, and long construction period, the city is laced back together and it's one. It's thriving. And in my estimate, the single most exciting stop in Germany these days is not Munich anymore, but Berlin. Berlin was divided by the uh, occupying powers. The French and American and British sectors was the West, and the Eastern sector, uh, the Russian sector, was uh, contained in a 100-mile-long anti-fascist protective rampart. That's what the East German government called it. It was erected almost overnight in 1961 to stop the flow of people out of the DDR, Eastern Germany. Uh, I think three million people leaked out between World War II and 1961 when they put up that wall. It's 13 feet high, 16-foot anti-tank ditch. There was a no-man's land called the Death Strip. 300 guard towers. The wall lasted for 28 years. Border guards fired nearly 2,000 times. Over 3,000 arrests were made of people trying to escape. There was 5,000 documented successful escapes, and 500 of them were East German guards. Today I'm joined by three people who have a personal experience with the wall. Happy Kerkeling is a German comedian, a writer, a TV host, and he lives in Berlin now. Lee Evans is an American who's lived in Berlin as a tour guide for 13 years. And Bernie Schmeiser was raised in eastern Berlin, and today he's a teacher and translator in Berlin and Potsdam. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Hello. Hello. Hi, Rick. Hi. Hi. It's 20 years. Let's just think. There's probably a lot of reminiscing going on in Berlin right now. Tell me, what do you think about when you think back on that night that I would imagine everybody who lived in Germany especially knows exactly what they were doing when the wall fell? Happy Kirkeling, tell us about your memories of November 9, 1989. Well, I remember that I came back to my hotel in Hamburg and wanted to go to bed and just put on my TV set and was watching how the East German people, the East Berliners, could cross the border points and come to West Berlin. And I thought, well... What kind of strange science fiction documentary is this? And people were crying and happy, and it's one of the most unforgettable moments in my life. It really was uh, a, a great feeling of happiness when that wall came down. Bernie, you were in eastern Berlin that night. What was that like? Right, it was kind of funny for me over my side because um, at the time I was working in a garage. I was a car mechanic at the time. Working in the garage, we had the radio on, and there was another announcement by the government side saying, well, you can cross the border now with special permission. And it was like, well, then you have to get another permission. And it was all sort of frustrating again. Um, having worked, I went home at 11 p.m. and my wife was already asleep. And I actually went to bed. <laughs> my wife was a nurse. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, the alarm clock rang. It was a radio alarm. Well, people are dancing on the wall, and I thought, what the hell is that? I didn't know what to do about it. And my wife woke up and said, well, I saw something strange on television yesterday night, but I, I didn't really take it for real. And uh, actually, we listened to the news, and it, they were all absolutely enthusiastic about it, and all people were running down Kurfürstendamm, and the reporters were going along. So we listened to the radio show and said, well then it seems to be true, so we can cross. At the time, I had a car from a client, which was sort of um, a rare to have in the East. The client gave it to me for repair. 
And uh, I simply packed my wife in the car and the kid, and then we went over to visit relatives in West Berlin. You drove. Um, you drove across. Uh, the, <laughs> you were in a, a car shop. You took one of the cars that were there because you didn't have a car. Took your family to the west. I didn't take the car out of the car shop or out of the garage. The, it was personally entrusted to me by a good friend of mine. Okay. And so I worked in a special garage. We we had VWs there, which were very rare in the east. So you were sort of a millionaire when you had it. Mm. Basically, when you had one, then you always knew somebody who repaired it so that man knew me and uh, he gave me his car for repair and i had repaired it the day before so in the morning i took the car and went to west berlin and that man was nuts all day long because he couldn't get hold of me i didn't have a telephone so he tried to get me at the garage but i wasn't in, at the garage in the morning and he thought i stole his car <laughs> so you were joyriding around the west yeah. now i've seen people climbing on the wall that night but you could actually drive your car uh, through the checkpoints also is that right it started actually the same night at bernauer straße which was about uh, 25 kilometers away from my home but there was a border crossing point near my home and they opened in the morning at 7 my goodness. So in the morning, everything was, was open and people could cross. You had to get a stamp in your ID card, but actually the, the policemen at the border or the border guards, they couldn't really handle the masses that were going mm. through there. And in the end, they gave up and mm. simply waved people through and said, well, you can go through, you can go through. The announcement about that special permission, which was uh, given by, I think he was the mayor of Berlin at the time, the announcement he gave was that any citizen of the German Democratic Republic could cross the border now and could go to West Berlin or West Germany with a special permission receivable at, at any police station. And for us, that meant, well, you have to go to another police station getting your permission there, and they will not give you the permission, as it always was. You had grown up, Bernie, with these frustrations that were part of life in communist East Berlin, and you just thought false hope again, and you were skeptical, and then all of a sudden it turned out not too good to be true. Correct, correct. What did you do? You had never been in the West and you took your family over there. What was that like? Amazingly, it was as if uh, driving around East Berlin because the city, I mean, it was simply divided by a wall, but the, the structure, the old structure, was the same. It looked pretty much alike. It was a bit more renovated on the Western side. So the Eastern side looked a little bit more run down. But otherwise, I mean, I knew most of the street names either from television, advertisements. My father grew up in West Berlin, so he actually grew up in the, in the borough or in the district where we were heading for. And uh, my father had an old road map at home, and as kids we were playing with the road map a lot, and he showed us the street, so I, I could pretty easily orientate. I knew where the, where the S-Bahn was going. The, hmm. the commuter train city ring showed you the way as well. So there, there were orientation landmarks that we knew about. And Lee Evans, I understand you were in Italy, and then all of a sudden you realized the big event was about to happen, and you zipped back to Berlin. Tell us what that was like. No, I was living in Italy. We went to Berlin on roughly the 7th of November, and we were sitting in a pub in East Berlin when Gunter Schabowski made this speech. I, I can't remember if we heard it live or not, but I remember there being a big furor um, around the city, and... Naturally, people stormed to the first border crossing, and the one that we saw was Bornholmerstrasse, and people were initially turned away, but then they just started coming back, and no one knew what to do, and then all of a sudden, the dam burst, and these people flooded into the West, and everyone in the West had heard about this already, so they were waiting at the border crossings with champagne and money and, and bananas, things that they thought you couldn't get. It was just this huge party for 10 days, at least. And then all the East Germans went back to the East and went back to work. Bernie, were you, uh, at least said about bananas, were there things that you like had to get your hands on as soon as you had freedom? Well, I, I, I knew what a banana was before. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had that every Christmas about. Berlin, as the capital of the German Democratic Republic, was always under very, very good supply. So I never suffered any sort of... Um, hunger at least. <laughs> so you got your Christmas banana then? We got our Christmas bananas and we got our Christmas apples and ah, whatever sort of fruit. Mm. So I had that all and I, I didn't have a problem with that. Um, the funny thing though was when I came to the West first, our relatives took us to the KDV. And that was, uh, the, the KDV is a big department store and as most department stores have, they have a restaurant on the fifth or sixth floor and a 
huge food department. And I don't know why our relatives thought they would have to take us there. They probably were sitting on the old propaganda thing that, well, in the East there are shortages of this and that. I mean, they visit us basically every month. They came over to, to visit us for a Saturday or Sunday for a cup of coffee, and they knew that we were not lacking anything, really. I mean, not tremendously. Probably the, the, the quality of the food was not as good as theirs, but they, they took us to that food department, and I thought, what the heck am I doing here? That was much too much for me. I didn't want to see all that stuff. That's the temple of capitalism, really, and, and all the materialism. When you go to this huge, fancy department store and you see this lavish display of food, I would imagine some capitalists think that would be nirvana for a uh, sorry little communist. <sighs> But there wasn't for I mean, you, apparently. You cannot eat it all, can you? It's like, <laughs> it, it, I still don't like that thing. It's a, I, I don't like all, all that huge display stuff. And, and when people have lines and shelves of this and that, it's like, well, you have a big choice. But with having the choice, you have to make up your mind. Um, if the choice is a little bit narrowed, Making up your mind is not that complicated. I mean, probably I'm a, I'm well, that's a little a bit a child of my time. and It's a different perspective, and I think um, that's something we learn when we put the two systems together. Hoppy Kirkling, you're a, a travel writer. You've written a book called I'm Off Then about your recent trip to uh, Santiago de Compostela. And today you live in Berlin, uh, 20 years after the fall of the wall. There's a, a lot of uh, hoopla because of this 20th anniversary. How are the people taking it? Do you think people appreciate the importance of the fall of the wall 20 years later? Oh, I think people still do appreciate uh, the 20 years of the fall of the wall, most of all because it reminds us of the peaceful revolution that had taken place then. But when you come to Berlin today and you come into the city, there should be one sign saying under construction because the whole town is under construction. And I think there is no other city in Europe where so many new buildings are going to be built. So it's, it's going to be a complete new world within the next 20 years. You're surrounded by all of these construction cranes and all of this building and all of this it's sort of like the triumph of capitalism. It's one system um, uh, triumphs over the other. And as uh, Bernie said, there was a lot of um, good things about the quality of life that might not be want to tossed out um, in mass when we when we go from one system to the next. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Hoppe Kerkeling, Lee Evans, and Bernie Schmeiser. We're talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, we're talking about what's going on in Berlin today, 20 years later. Do you remember... A great hysterical war that separated heats from west and the north from south. The Berlin Wall, do you remember the Berlin Wall? Mm. The Berlin Wall, do you remember the Berlin Wall? I'm talking about the great hysterical wall. Mm -hmm. Just the other day, it crumbled and it fell. People came from as far as America, and people came from as far as Africa, just to see the Great Wall tumbling down. Cause now the mash it down, them rocky down, the Berlin Wall, we will remember the... 877-333-7425. That's our phone number as we look back 20 years since the fall of the Berlin Wall on today's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Happy Kerkeling. I'm joined by Lee Evans and Bernie Schmeiser. And we're talking about the fall of the wall 20 years ago. And 20 years later, what's up in Berlin? Now, Happy, when you walk around Berlin and you want to recall the 
old days, the fall of the wall, the struggle of the people, is there a particular place you go to remember the struggles that Berlin has been through? Well, I think the place I would choose is always the Brandenburg Gate. It's one of the, well, decisive historic monuments of Germany. And if you stand there and you see the wall isn't there anymore, and you can walk to the east and to the west, and people are all free now, that gives me a great feeling of freedom as well. You know, I remember when there was barbed wire under the river, the Spree River, to stop people from swimming across in the night. Just the thought of somebody having to swim in the darkness underwater and hit that chicken wire and then come up and be shot at by guards and so on. And today, the Spree River is a wonderful people's park with sort of temporary beaches set up and lounge chairs and new governmental buildings celebrating democracy. To me, that's quite poignant. Lee Evans, what do you look to in Berlin to sort of remember uh, the struggles and to celebrate the freedom? Well, I'd have to agree. The Brandenburg Gate is a unique symbol of Berlin. When I think of the the history of Berlin, I, I really want to walk down maybe the Karl Marx Allee to Alexanderplatz to see this huge, imposing Stalinist architecture that really doesn't mean anything anymore. How futile it all was. There's a cafe there with a little bit of a statue of Stalin, his mustache on the wall, isn't there? Because the Karl Marx Allee used to be the Stalin Allee. The largest statue of Stalin in Germany was there. And when Stalin fell out of favor, um, the secret police hired people to jackhammer this thing down in secret with only people that they trusted. But one of these workers smuggled out an ear and the mustache, <laughs> and that is in the Café Sibylle now. Plaster casts of the ear cost five euros. That's capitalism. Bernie Schmeiser, you lived in the DDR in eastern Berlin, and uh, today, of course, the whole place is rebuilt, and uh, the east is now the trendy center in a lot of ways. As 20 years have passed, is there a a special place you go that has meaning to you as somebody who's raised and uh, bred in in Berlin? In one place it is, the Brandenburg Gate, in the city center, um, walking down Friedrichstrasse towards the Brandenburg Gate, and then passing over, passing to the side, to the Reichstag. That's the way we, n- we never could walk, because the wall blocked it all. There are other places as well. For example, when I go over to visit my parents, I always have to cross the old border stretches. When I go from Potsdam, then you cross the, the site where the Berlin Wall was, which cannot be seen anymore. When I simply want to sit uh, on, on the S-Bahn, on the commuter train from Potsdam going to Berlin, I ride on a line that I never would have dreamed of riding before being 65 years of age when I could have been a pensioner and, and could have gone over. But they let older people cross the wall then. That's interesting. You would have to get a permission by the police, right. but you could travel for not only for special events, but you could travel and see your sister, your brother, your relatives, wherever. Now I'm, I'm sitting on those trains day by day and um, I can go across those old border crossing points. And it's, it's always a little reminder when you just check in from one part to the other, and then you sit there realizing, well, I couldn't have done that 20 years ago. That was impossible. And now it's, it's, um, it's still an amazing feeling seeing that part that I never would have dreamed of seeing it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are celebrating 20 years of freedom in Berlin and talking with three people who lived it. They were there when the wall fell. And uh, we've got Brian on the telephone line from Monette, Missouri. Brian, you were in Berlin when the wall came down. What was that like? We were not aware that anything was going to happen. I'd been living in England at the time. And we came over and serendipitously, if you don't mind my taking one of your words, the wall came down. There had been some buzz that something was going to happen, and uh, we were very standoffish about it at first because we were concerned for our safety that maybe something was going to happen, and uh, um, it was a big party, and we just couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable that this was going on while we just happened to be there. We were still afraid to go over to East Berlin at the time. Everybody seemed very tense about making any crossings as tourists from west to east, and when we'd go to look... On the east side, there'd be these huge winding lines that seemed to go on forever of people trying to get over to the western side. And then December came, and we finally got over to East Berlin a month later. And I seem to recall that while the buildings looked the same and the people weren't much different, the, it, the streets were empty. I, I don't know. Maybe everybody was standing in line waiting to get over to the west. But, you know, there was definitely a... Uh, a sense of jubilation on the west side. And when we were on the east side, everybody seemed very um, depressed almost. 
after the wall fell. Uh, Bernie, what is your recollection of that? Um, Brian just recalls there to be a gloom in the east. I mean, right after the wall fell, I more had the feeling that the party was on. Mostly the party was on in the west. But it was not the Westerners making the party, it was a party jointly made. Because the Westerners weren't too much interested coming into the East, discovering the East. It was the other way around. I mean, we were blocked out for so long years, and therefore the Easterners jumped over in, in, into West Berlin. That probably added to the, the feeling of euphoria uh, when you were at Kurfürstendamm, and the depression at Alexanderplatz, because the people who usually were living there, they were just over at Kurfürstendamm. Another thing that probably added to the impression of depression was the state of uh, rundown economy, rundown houses and, and, and living quarters and things like that. I mean, you could see that things were falling apart a lot, and especially the comparison when you came from the West and came into the East, it was sort of grayish, I think, and, and a little bit of monotone. And that, of course, adds to an impression of depression. And then you had November in Berlin, and that's always a little <laughs> mm. bit of yeah, November a month Berlin. that doesn't really make you happy. Well, you know, it's interesting when you think of the uh, what was the purpose of the wall. The, the Eastern Germans called it the anti-fascist protective rampart, implying that it was protecting the people of East Berlin from the West. And when the wall fell down, everybody went to the West. So clearly the party was in the West. That's where people wanted to go. The wall was not keeping people out of the East, that's for sure. Hape Kirkeling, any comments on this? Well, I do remember maybe the reason for that, that the Westerners didn't go to the East, is that when we had to go to, or if we wanted to go to East Berlin, we were controlled so strictly, and you kind of always had a feeling of fear if you went to East Berlin. And still today, I must tell you the truth, I love Berlin as a whole, and it's a great place to be, but... We, as Westerners then, before the wall came down, I, I remember we had to leave East Berlin by 12 p.m., so pretty much like Cinderella. And still today, sometimes when it gets close to 12 p.m., I kind of think, oh, my God, it's, it's in me. I, I have to go now. So you still have that feeling. And I live in Berlin, but strangely enough, I decided to, to live in the Western part. So... In a way, this strange pattern is on a subconscious level still in me. That's interesting that you choose to live in the West even 20 years later because of that deep-seated sort of thinking that there's freedom in the West. Yeah, maybe, because that was what we were taught. And in a way, uh, it's still there in, in a subconscious level, of course. We've got uh, John on the line in Indian Head Park, Illinois. John, do you have uh, memories of uh, visiting Berlin? Yes, I do. I was there in 1965 at the time when the wall was really only about four years old. It was a very, well, kind of a traumatic experience because we uh, had a group of about uh, 40 people and <clears throat> we went to the wall and um, we stood there and you know, there was a kind of a platform on which we could climb and anyone who wanted to and we were looking over and way off in the distance, there were uh, two or three people waving like torn bed sheets or something. And then there were some people within about, say, 50 feet of us who were waving back to them. And that's the only way they could communicate at that time. I mean, they were, they were very um, emotional. And um, <clears throat> we were, too, because it, it looked so bad, you know. And... Um, there was so much damage all around us, and then we came back in 2000, and a huge radical difference took place, you know, in the building. It was very um, much improved. You know, we tried to get into eastern Berlin at the time, and uh, because of some mix-up, we didn't make it. But anyhow, when we got back this time in 2000... <laughs> It was no problem at all, and it was just amazing how much improvement had been taking place. Oh, yeah. As Hoppy uh, mentioned, it's just uh, the biggest construction zone in Europe, and in 20 years they've done remarkable things. Oh, yeah. There were six of us who got into a kind of a large, you know, van-like cab, and we drove around, and um, <laughs> the one man with us who said, I want to see the spot where Adolf Hitler committed suicide. And uh, the driver said, oh, I know where that is. So he took us over there, and, of course, all there was 
was a kind of a big empty lot, and there was a little red shed, and that was supposedly the, the site where the building had been where this all transpired. We just wondered, you know, if that had been built over by now. I have no idea, you know, myself. Yeah, I was just there, and there's absolutely nothing there, thank goodness. There's, yeah. It's just a park. Nobody even wants to know exactly where it was. It's sort of a nondescript parking lot or, or road, and uh, that's yeah. where it's going to lie. Thanks, John, for your comments. Sure. Michael's on the phone in Raleigh, North Carolina. Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. I was stationed there in the uh, Army in the uh, early 70s, and I worked uh, in military intelligence at uh, Teufelsberg, which is the man-made mountain that they built uh, after World War II out of the rubble from the city. It was the the highest point, so that's where they put the radio uh, intercept station. And so we collected uh, German military and Russian military. Of course, we were surrounded by uh, five or six uh, Soviet divisions in Berlin. When we would track uh, German uh, artillery units, one of the things that we would discover when we listened in was that they were uh, sighting their artillery guns and when we track the coordinates of where they were pointing their guns, it was our station. When you look around from a vantage point in Berlin and you see a mound yeah. that's now a green park, you can pretty much assume that is rubble from World War II, bulldozed together and then uh, covered with dirt. Is, Bernie, is that right, from uh, the rubble of World War II? Yep. What you see in the middle of Berlin or whatever in elevation there is, like the Friedrichshain and the, the Mont Klamot in Friedrichshain, or the Teufelsberg or something like that. That's all man-made. That's all of the rubble of the Second World War. You know, what's interesting to me is how Berlin has been laced back together. And, uh, Hoppe, you made the comment earlier how the city is a, a big construction site. My understanding was during the, you know, during the Cold War, you had two zones of two separate cities. The, the city had to be broken and rebuilt separate, and now it's broken again and rebuilt one. The museums have moved back to the center and so on. Has this been done in a good way for the people of Berlin? Is it working? Well, I think it's too early to tell because there are so many new buildings, for example, Potsdamer Platz. The government decided not to reconstruct it historically as it was before, but to give it a new face. And whether this is done well or not, future must tell. I think Berliners are willing to accept the new face of the city uh, but it, it'll take some time because you have to get used to it. It's all new. Now, Frederick the Great's palace was torn down by the communists and the Palace of the People was built. And that was just a very uh, showpiece in the middle of East Berlin where uh, visitors could go and say, wow, this system works pretty well. And it was sort of over the top and uh, kind of uh, kitschy, but uh, it was the best DDR could do. And now they've just torn that down. And it must be the biggest lawn in Europe. It's just a big stretch of grass. And they're going to rebuild a facade of Frederick the Great's palace, I understand, and make kind of a shopping mall out of it or something. What's your take on that whole uh, discussion in Berlin, Hoppe? I think it's it's quite a nice idea. But now, if you can, if you see the lawn right in the center of Berlin, everybody has fallen in love with this empty space. You really can breathe freely. You can watch the cathedral. You can see the channels and the spray, the river. It's a beautiful scenery. So, if it was left the way it is now. It would be a great uh, spot for recreation. But I think they are doing a good job by rebuilding the historic castle. And then it's going uh, to be the Humboldt Center, which uh, then will be a big museum. I had that same reaction, Hoppe, when I was there just a couple of months ago. It's just what a delightful open space in the middle of an intense city. This is a vast perfectly flat lawn. It's like three football fields with just people enjoying uh, the sunshine. Uh, Lee, what's your take on the uh, future of the Frederick the Great's palace site? Well, it's a very controversial project, of course. The palace itself just highlights the differences between East and West Berliners. East Berliners wanted to keep the palace the way that it was, uh, maybe add this facade, uh, merging the two historical periods. But when we decided to tear it down, East Berliners decided that they weren't going to come out and support the Tempelhof Initiative, which uh, closed one of the great historical airports in the city, which uh, West Berliners overwhelmingly wanted. So there's still this kind of divide, um, this give and take, right? Tear down our castle, we'll uh, destroy your airport. So it's a complicated um, ongoing process it's as, very complicated. as Berlin rebuilds after being split by that ugly wall. The point is, 20 years now since the wall came down, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of November 9, 1989. And uh, I'm joined by Hoppe Kerkeling, 
a German uh, comedian and television host, and his book is called I'm Off. It's about his, his pilgrimage to the city of Santiago de Compostela. I'm joined by Lee Evans, a tour guide in Berlin, and Bernie Schmeiser, who's a translator and teacher in uh, Berlin who grew up in eastern Berlin. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating freedom and unity in Berlin. Jeff emailed us from Cape Girardeau in uh, Missouri. He said, while in Berlin, my wife and I were surprised to discover the relative dilapidation of the city streets, grass growing high in the medians, shooting up through cracks in the streets, <laughs> lack of public works budgets. And uh, I was just there, and people were saying that uh, Berlin is in huge debt, and the rest of Germans think it serves you right because you built all these fancy buildings, and now the city government is having to pull way back on maintenance. Uh, what's the latest on that? Well, Berlin is in debt somewhere in the tune of uh, 24,000 euros for every breathing human being in the city. <laughs> and th there are a bunch of reasons for that. And uh, I wouldn't say that it's because of all of these building projects because the city isn't the one who's doing the building for real. We're in debt because of a bank scandal. I mean, there's all kinds of different things. Okay, so there's a $40,000 per person debt for the city of Berlin and they're in a right. financial right. crisis. Plus, Berlin has all of these other expenses, right? No other city or state in Germany has to provide so much police protection for so many diplomats and so many parliamentarians. The city has to sport all of that. I mean, Berlin's the size of Paris. And with a budget so small, the streets are a disaster. Like, like Lausanne. The budget <laughs> like Lausanne. Happy, yeah. thank you so much. Rick, thank you very much for having me. Best wishes. Und alles Gute nach Berlin. Hey, um... Viel Spaß noch mit die Königin von den Niederlanden. Das war super toll. Werde ich haben, werde ich haben. Happe is um, proof that Germans have no sense of humor. <laughs> he does these Borat-like things. Mm -hmm. What but I a lot better. A lot they're, better. They're a lot better. Um, what he did is the funniest thing that I've ever seen a German do. At a reception for the Queen of the Netherlands, he dressed up like Beatrix mm. um, and came in in a car into the Bellevue, the, the presidential palace. Wow. Um, and pretended that he was the Queen of the Netherlands. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and he is super funny, but um, what he does is expose how humorless German officialdom is. Like, all these police officers who could have rolled with it are like, well, I trust that you will be uh, removing yourself from the area in a timely manner, and wow. you can't be here. The press stand is over there. <laughs> okay. um, it, it was really funny. You should YouTube it. Even if you don't speak yeah. German, yeah. the accent is so funny. Yeah. Anyway, that's me fawning over him also. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, <laughs> everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> they sentenced me to 20 years of boredom For trying to change the system from within I'm coming now, I'm coming to reward them First, we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're visiting Berlin, 20 years after the fall of the wall. November 9, 1989. I think everybody remembers looking at that euphoric celebration as suddenly the people of eastern Berlin were free to travel to the West. And of course, that really marked the end of the Cold War, and suddenly there's 100 million some people in Eastern uh, Europe who are free to live their lives more like the way they want to. While our guest, Happy Kerkeling, had to leave to continue his publicity tour in New York, our connection to Berlin stays open with Lee Evans and Bernie Schmeiser. Lee is an American-born tour guide who's made Berlin his home now for 13 years. And Bernie was raised in East Berlin and now works as a translator from nearby Potsdam. Lee and Bernie, thanks for being with us. Welcome. Yeah. I was just in Berlin a month or two ago, and the Spree River is suddenly a huge attraction. It used to be a very boring boat ride, and I didn't recommend it. Now it's one of the delights of the city. The Spree River used to be the no-man's land, marking uh, where the wall would have gone. And today, of course, the wall's gone, and it's like a people's park. Lee, are suddenly people recognizing that we have a whole new playground? Well, Berliners love to play, which is why we have more parks than any other city. But seeing Berlin from the back along the Spree, it's a way to see Berliners at play. Uh, we've built several beach bars. There's sandcastle exhibits. The government is building up onto the river. So seeing Berlin from the back is just as good, if not better, from seeing it from the front. 
There's a promenade. You can walk along the, the river now that didn't even exist a couple of years ago. Bernie, that must be interesting for you, having grown up in a, in a bleak society where that was just a wall of barbed wire, and now that's the focus of all this people-friendly kind of activity. Well, we used the river spray before, but only to a certain extent, because there was parts of the wall, especially in the middle of the city, and this is where, of course, most tourists come. As people who lived there, we, we lived a little bit in the suburb. We could use the river as well as having boat rides on there, but boat rides was, as you said, I consider that something for old people. Now you can discover Berlin from a totally different viewpoint because you can see Berlin again as people probably approached it uh, 300 years ago because Berlin was built from the boat. It was barges who brought in all the supplies from wherever, Bohemia, where, where we got apples from 300 years ago and whatever, and all the building material came in with the barges on the River Spray. And this was actually the point from which Berlin was built and stretched out. And here you have the opportunity to go around and across the city all with that river, and that's really a brilliant thing. It's a new dimension to the city. Yeah. Earlier I asked both of you where you go to commune with the historic soul of Berlin and, and recall the fall of the wall. And you said Brandenburg Gate. And, and right in front of Brandenburg Gate, you've got Paris Square. And when you stand there, you see a museum about John F. Kennedy, you see a Starbucks, you see a French embassy, you see the new American embassy, a fancy hotel, and of course this grand gate to the city, the Brandenburg Gate. What an incredible metamorphosis that Paris Square has made. Tell me about your thoughts when you stand in the middle of Paris Square. When I stand in Paris Square, I think of a Berliner idiom, which is, no matter how the world changes, Berlin stays the same. And even though it's different now, Berlin is the same. If you look at Paris Square, you still have museum, embassy, bank, bank, gate, embassy, bank, art school, hotel. Hmm. And that's the way that the square has always been. And it may, be, it may look different now, but it's the same. What do you think, Bernie? In a, in a way, Lee's right, although I, I would not hang it on the use of the buildings. But Berliners often used to say the Paris Square, it, in the 20s, it must have been a real beautiful place. But then it, it came into disuse, and I mean, Hitler wanted to eradicate the whole area, so he already started with some projects on that, and it was cleared out of all the trees on the square, so the, the place became quite ugly. In East German times, it was an ugly square anyways because there, there was a blocking wall. It was the depressive feeling when, when you stood there. And right now, I mean, it's not a real beautiful thing. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that Berliners will very soon, as always, find a nice nickname for it because mm. I don't know really if they like it yet. And if they don't like a thing really, then it gets a, a, a funny nickname and they can okay. go with it. But we love to complain about stuff sure. like that. So. <laughs> what do you, what's the take on the U.S. Embassy? Because that's a pretty impressive new American embassy right there on the square. Building an architecture, that's all a, a matter of taste. It's definitely an expression of, of power when you're right in front of it. And in my opinion, it is definitely an expression of the feeling of its time when it was fashioned. Bush and all the wars going on, all the talk about terrorism and, and things and the threat of terrorism in general, blown up as a, as a ghost running around somewhere threatening us. This is what the building says to me when, when I'm in front of it. It's like, well, I'm boxed in and I, now that we don't need a wall there anymore, I would have expected a very open building, which it has not become. And I'm a, a bit disappointed about it because it looks like a huge fortress, actually. Don't we call it the bunker? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, Bernie, you grew up not free, and eventually the wall fell down in 1989, and I think everybody has to admit uh, it's because of the strength of the American uh, pressure against the Soviet Union that this was possible. And today, right there at the sort of icon of the wall, the wall's gone, and there's an embassy of the United States, which brought freedom to Berlin, which feels like a wall and a bunker. It's a very poignant, confusing thing. When you look at that, do you feel good or bad? As I said before, it's, it's, it's a matter of taste and architecture. I don't really hang it to the building. They built it there. It, the decision was made. The American embassy was just around the corner before in a much nicer building, or it had a much nicer facade, actually. Hmm. But uh, the decision was made, and 
people can think about modern architecture, whatever they want to. But if I take it as symbolism, or if, if you ask me for my perception in terms of symbolism there, then it is like a bunker. It is sort of a manifesting concrete block. I thought that we were happy to not having any concrete blocks anymore. But um, in terms of symbolism, in terms of the powers represented there, it definitely is a positive thing to see the American embassy, the British embassy, and the Russian embassy shoulder by shoulder hmm. when you walk down Friedrichstraße. And not, the French embassy is there, don't And the know. French embassy is there as well. That's without having too much fencing around. But if I want to visit the British embassy, I have to send my application in advance. If I want to go into the American embassy, I have to send in in advance as well because they fear a threat of terrorism, which the Russians obviously don't have. I don't know, but they handle it differently. I'm Rick Steves. I'm joined by Bernie Schmeiser and Lee Evans. We're talking about Berlin 20 years after the fall of the wall. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK. And Kay has called from Seattle. Kay, thanks for your call. Yes, I'm um, really interested to talk about Berlin and hear about what's happening now, because I haven't been since the 60s, and so it's a lot of difference. And what are your memories of uh, traveling in Berlin in the 60s? We crossed over through Checkpoint Charlie, and of course you had to have your passport stamp, which is very nice, which they don't do anymore, but I was by myself and we were just walking. I had to change a certain amount of money, and I don't remember what that was anymore, but you couldn't take any back with you, so it had to be all spent. There really wasn't a lot to spend it on because the shops were pretty empty. The windows were practically bare, and the best thing that I could find was just to buy some food. They had wonderful little coffee shops where they had some very strong coffee and pastries and cakes and things like that. And walking through the streets was just very weird because they were practically bare too. There was an occasional little old rattly car that would shunt past and big old buses. Um, I don't know where they were going. Everything was practically, you know, decrepit because they just didn't have any resources, I guess. And there was this rubble everywhere, great big piles of bricks and things. Well, I guess the streets were clean and all, but there were these piles of rubble from all the bombed out buildings and just was like walking through a sort of a moonscape or a deserted country like where everybody had left it was very very strange and everyone was dressed in very drab colorless clothes and everybody looked very depressed i don't know if they were allowed to talk to i'm getting depressed just listening to you oh. it sounds dreadful well, hey, it was well let's get bernie's take on that because bernie grew up there bernie was it really that bleak well, I mean, I was born in 64, and I don't know when, when Kay visited Berlin. This was 66 um, when I was there. Bernie was two years old. So two years, oh, two years after I was born. I do not have really any recollection to that. But when I was old, let's say, child of five, I actually led a, a quite happy life and didn't have too much the feeling that, that everything was bleak. I think that till the mid-60s, there was massive rebuilding work. Really? I remember where I lived in 1969. There was a sort of tenement house, and we had a backyard behind the house, and there used to be a sort of uh, coal trader. And this coal trader was swept out, and we built a garden in there. And that was an initiative that was subsidized by the city of Berlin, and we made a real green area. And so incentives were given particularly to make Berlin as the capital as well as other bigger cities have a nicer appearance. So after some cleaning up and rebuilding work was done in the post-war, in the longer post-war period, there were quite a lot of improvements starting in the 70s. On the other hand, to get back to the point of feeling bleak and depressed, uh, I didn't have that feeling. I had a pretty happy life and and leading your day-to-day life. You find your arrangements with a system, talking about communism. I feel that particularly Americans often have a perception when they hear the word communism, they are getting the creeps. Mm -hmm. Um, Having grown up in a what I call a socialist system, not a communist system, they never claim to be communists but socialists. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a slight difference from whatever perspective. It nevertheless, of course, I know was a dictatorship. But um, having grown up in that part of the world, 
it was not that I had the feeling, neither as a kid nor as a young adult, as lacking any of the basics like like food or clothing or accommodation or something like that. It was more that in day-to-day -day life there were certain drags, especially when your workplace was involved. There was always a lack of something or a shortage of something. There were misplannings and missupplies happening all over the place. For example, in the garage where I worked, sometimes you liked nuts and sometimes you liked bolts and you couldn't do anything about it. That was a frustrating thing. Otherwise, life in general was not too frustrating. When it comes down to, well, career and things like that, that could have been frustrating if you would not uh, have been going along the lines, which I wasn't. So it was a bit frustrating for me in, in those terms. Okay, we're going to have to move along. Thanks for your call. Yes, thank you. Good. Well, yes. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're remembering Berlin 20 years after the fall of the wall, and I'm joined by Lee Evans and Bernie Schmeiser. we got Steve on the line in Mesquite, Texas. Steve, thanks for your call. Thank you for having me on the show. Wow, this is exciting. It's been 25 years since I was stationed in Berlin in the Army. Since then, uh, of course, you know, the wall came down, and I've had a chance to speak to people who've either visited or lived there since that happened. And I hear that what was formerly East Berlin is in a whole lot better shape now than what was formerly West Berlin because all the, the money has been spent over that way and development and everything. And I'd like to know to what extent that's true, in particular, the location in, in what was formerly East Berlin. Uh, this just blew me away when I visited it, was the Trepp Tower Memorial Park, the Soviet Memorial Park. I was wondering if it has anything been done with that. What is the status of that? What does it look like now? Is it the same as before? Whatever. Two simple answers. Um, it's true. East Germany has, say, for example, the most advanced fiber optic phone <laughs> network on the planet because tons of money were pumped into this marauding infrastructure. So East Berlin is one of the only places, say, to get a T4 internet line within the next six weeks. You have great infrastructure because so much was invested thereafter. And in a relative short period of time, mm. therefore, it appears as if, well, all that money was going to the east. It was, in a way, for a short period of time. I don't think that will in the long run. Right. Now it takes uh, almost eight months to get a lamp changed on my street light <laughs> in Charlottenburg. <laughs> and what's the status of the Trepp Tower Memorial? That's a memorial to the Soviets that died in Berlin, is that right? It is. It is a huge memorial. It's a graveyard. Mm to the Soviet troops that died in both world wars. It was a huge, massive park. And we have to remember, it was the Soviets that freed Berlin yeah, right. from, that's from that's Hitler. That's why I'm real curious as to what's going on with it now. It is a protected historical monument, right. um, so there's no way that anything there will change. The, the only thing that has changed is that some of these granite uh, reliefs have had a plastic coating sprayed on them, so it's being protected and kept up. Um, it is an essential part of the history of Berlin, and, and Berliners aren't forgetting that. Despite the fact that you can't see an intact section of the Berlin Wall 20 years after the fall of the wall, Berliners are very interested in keeping these historical aspects of their city alive. And there's a lot of money put into keeping antique statuary, regardless of the period, in a state that reflects what Berlin is really about. And Treptower Park, there's actually a bigger memorial in another part of the city, and these are all protected. Um, it's one wow. of the few places in Berlin where there's no graffiti. Mm -hmm. huh. That's true. Or very little. Very <laughs> little. I can't wait to get back over there to see it now, 25 years after I've been. My son was born there in the Army Hospital, and uh, one of the most fascinating times of my life. You know, and, and thinking, you know, well, somewhere in the future the wall's going to come down, and never imagining it happening in my lifetime, then I'm sitting here in my <laughs> living room one day watching it happen. It's just, uh, wow. So welcome to the club. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing story. A West Berliner would now thank Steve for uh, doing his part, for helping keep West Berlin whatever West Berlin was. <laughs> they, they, they would definitely say thank you. And, and one of the great things about Berlin is that despite all of what's happened in the last 15 or so years, there's very little anti-Americanism here because all West Berliners know what we did and what the British did and, and what even the Soviet Union did to keep war from breaking out here. Basically, Berliners were never really too much into politics. You never could deal with them politics. Berliners are more the personal or family type of guy who probably would say in the end of this show, will probably say, Hast du Jude gemacht, Rick? Which done means, well. Done well? Well, well done. Good. Well, done. well good done. to know. 
Well, I think we can say well done to all of the soldiers that defended Berlin over that tough 40-year period. Of course, now we can celebrate 20 years of freedom in a city that really has turned a corner. Steve, thank you so much for your call. Thank you very much. And Lee and Bernie, what an exciting thing to talk about this great city. As I mentioned earlier, uh, if you have two days in Germany, I'd spend them in Berlin. Berlin is uh, cheap. Berlin is happening. Berlin is edgy. It's unpredictable, and it's ever-changing. I've been joined by Lee Evans and Bernie Schmeiser, both living in Berlin. Lee and Bernie, as you look back on 20 years and look ahead for what's going on in Berlin now, wrap it up just in a, in a couple of sentences. All I can say is when I think of Berlin and people coming to see it, I'm reminded of the mayor of Berlin during the Berlin airlift, and he said, you people of the world, look to the city. Come here and see what democracy is. And 20 years after the fall of the wall, Berlin is a vibrant, exciting place. It's also dirty, grimy, grungy, and I really pity anyone who's never been here. (laughs) I love that statement, actually. That's a good one. Yeah, what I think Berlin is, if I should wrap it up or put it in a nutshell, I'd say Berlin is the grand dame that actually changes every day but actually never changes in the end so it's sort of a never-ending story and i really love to be in berlin i love to live in berlin and i hope that i can spend the rest of my life here lee and bernie thanks so much i think we're all inspired to check out your hometown this is travel with rick steves we're celebrating 20 years of freedom since the fall of the berlin wall Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Special thanks for studio help today to Larry Josephson at the Radio Foundation in Manhattan and to Kristen Fisher at Audio Sprint Studio in Berlin. Join us again next week for more adventure on Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, one small group at a time. This year, we're offering more than 30 exciting itineraries. For a free tour catalog and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.